So we thought we'd like try to change it up a little bit um, on our topic. I'm Joe Green. I'm a LA-based entrepreneur. I build communal housing apartment buildings, which has nothing to do with this. Um, but this is an area that I've gotten just really interested in, in the last few years, and Mark and I thought you guys would be interested too. So you may or may not be surprised to learn, I was surprised to learn, that two currently illegal psychoactive compounds, MDMA, which is the active ingredient in what's sometimes called ecstasy, and psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, are both about five years away from potential approval by the FDA. So they've gone through phase one and phase two of trials and are about to start uh, phase three. And these are really transformative treatments for some of the toughest uh, mental health conditions, including PTSD and depression. And also, I think, potentially even more broadly, affecting some of the deeper kind of spiritual issues that affect our society. Uh, Michael Pollan, who some of you may have heard of, wrote Omnivore's Dilemma and um, Botany of Desire, wrote a New Yorker article a couple of years ago called The Trip Treatment, which I read and got me interested in this topic, and is coming out with a book in May all about psychedelic medicine. And we had a chance to have dinner recently, and he had this great line, which I love, that humanity faces two great crises, tribalism and environmental destruction. And both of these are rooted in the illusion of separateness. Separateness from other people and separateness from the earth. And mystical experience, which we'll hear is one of the things that these compounds can, uh, can lead to, uh, really can, can tear down those walls of separateness. Um, so we are really fortunate to have two of the absolute pioneers in this space. Um, so over to the left here is Professor Charlie Grobe. He's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA. Um, and he uh, has been doing psychedelic research studies, uh, legal psychedelic research studies in academia since the 90s. He did the first approved MDMA study in 1992 and the first approved ayahuasca study in 1993. He's also a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute, which has organized a lot of the early uh, research around psilocybin. And then we have Bob Jesse, who uh, had a career as a VP at Oracle and then made a, a big right turn. And, um, he was pivotal in forming the psilocybin research team at Johns Hopkins University, uh, which he's still a member of that team. He's also a board member at USONA, which is a nonprofit that's leading putting psilocybin through the FDA. Um, and fun fact, he, uh, he cold emailed Michael Pollan to try to get him interested in this topic, eventually got him to write, the, which led to eventually writing the New Yorker piece and then uh, this book. So without further ado, um, so my first question for Charlie, um, so give us a sense of what are these treatments actually like? What, is the, what, what are patients going through? What is that like for them? And what are some of the results? Right. Well, first, we have to contextualize it. This treatment is, is, is not a matter of a doctor writing a prescription, handing it to a patient, saying, take it during the week and tell me what happens next week. That, that, that's not what's going on. What you have are essentially all day long facilitated sessions where two co-therapists, often a male and female, are sitting with the patient, patient often with blindfold on, headphones on, listening to pre-recorded music, and urging the, the, the patient or in the research context of subject to go as deeply as possible. And for individuals suffering from various conditions, we've observed remarkable improvements in their clinical status afterwards. Now, all of this was known 
or a lot of this was known back in the 50s and 60s, but it became politically untenable to continue that work. We had to wait decades before it was possible again. But since the early 90s, uh, uh, we've been working with the regulatory agencies, myself, my colleagues at the Hefter Research Institute, other colleagues at MAPS, and um, have been able to get uh, necessary approval and sufficient you know, at least the minimum, minimal funding to, to establish phase one studies with normal volunteers and phase two studies establishing safety and feasibility with, with uh, small populations of subjects. So um, essentially these are profound um, interest objectives, states of consciousness, varying of course depending on what medicine is used. MDMA allows individuals to feel very safe and even able to talk about and, and examine issues in their lives which otherwise are overwhelming. And that's why it's been used uh, by a group led by Michael Mithofer in South Carolina as part of a MAPS effort to study the putative treatment of chronic treatment refractory post-traumatic stress disorder. And that group is getting excellent results um, far superior, as it turns out, to conventional psychopharmacologic agents that have long-standing indications from the regulatory agencies. So I think we're really on the threshold of, of breaking through into a very new and dynamic area in, in mental health treatments. I think there's tremendous potential to, um, to really facilitate uh, uh, a reduction of symptoms and improvement of uh, overall functional status. We've, the studies I've been involved with, with MDMA, uh, we did the initial phase one with normal volunteers. More recently, along with my colleague Alicia, Alicia Danforth, we've studied a uh, population of young adults with, uh, who are on the autism spectrum, high functioning, but with incapacitating social anxiety. After we screen subjects into the study, they're given a number of preparatory psychotherapy sessions. They, they are treated with two all day long facilitated therapy sessions where Alicia and I are with them throughout the entire time. And then starting the next day, we have a series of integrative sessions. And our subjects have done astonishingly well. Um, and our, our data will be published in the not too distant future in, uh, in, in the appropriate psychiatric journals. Um, I've also done work with psilocybin, which is the active alkaloid and hallucinogenic mushroom. We did a pilot study with um, uh, subjects who had advanced stage cancer and overwhelming reactive anxiety, depression, and demoralization, and we got remarkably positive results. This was a treatment model first examined in the 60s, actually with LSD, but it, everything was put on ice because of this cultural turmoil, political turmoil. But in recent years, we've been able to get all the, all the approvals, and this is, we felt, this is transformative medicine. And for individuals approaching the end of life to, to, who have lost their continuity with their sense of self, it provides a, a sense of renewed sense of meaning and purpose, and we found that our subjects had a far higher quality of life for the remainder of time they had left. And, and then, the other studies I've been involved with have been a series of ayahuasca research studies in Brazil, which are just fascinating in and of themselves, but uh, no, there's been no ayahuasca research as yet in the United States. But uh, I think for the purposes of our meeting here today, I, I, I just reflect a little bit more on MDMA and psilocybin as being 
potentially, when utilized under optimal safety conditions, they have the potential to facilitate uh, quite profound healing response and uh, improvement of function, even for patients that are suffering from uh, disorders that have not responded well to conventional treatments. Uh, and there's certainly a lot, you know, conventional psychiatry has a lot of treatments to offer. For some people, they're very effective. But for example, we know that upwards of 10% of the population at any one time are surveyed as having major depression. We also know that our conventional treatment approaches, psychopharm and non-medication, really succeed only in about half of those patients. So what happens with the other 50%? Well, there may be a, a, a very new and novel, or I should say, new, but perhaps an ancient, these are one of the most ancient medicine or, or, or treatments that, that may achieve effective treatment response where conventional treatments have failed. I think that's really ultimately the beauty of these potential treatments, that they may help those who are refractory or non-responsive to conventional treatments. So, I mean, we're very excited. The Hefter Institute, which I'm a founding board member, was established in 93, and we've been slowly plugging along. Other colleagues have established studies that are very important. A cigarette addiction cessation study at Johns Hopkins using uh, psilocybin, led by Matt Johnson, an alcoholism treatment study at NYU, led by uh, 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 Michael Bogenschutz. Um, after our study with uh, using psilocybin to treat uh, advanced cancer anxiety, our colleagues at Hopkins, led by Roland Griffiths, and at NYU, led by Steve Roths, have, have done similar studies and had permission to use a slightly higher dose, had more funding to tr treat more uh, patients, and, and got very, very impressive results. So I think we're really onto something here, and I think we're actually at the threshold of, of emerging into a, a new and vital area in uh, mental health treatments that the mainstream is now starting to accept and resonate with, and, um, and I think it's going to be a very interesting future in that regard. Thank okay. you. I mean, it's, it's amazing that you guys, you know, as entrepreneurs, we like to think of having grit, but you guys have been working on this for 25 years. Oh, longer than that. Or, yeah, <laughs> sort of burrowed away. Like, I can't imagine, like, what, like, year 17 was like. Um, and, like, in some of the data, like, I've seen for PTSD, the control is a series of normal psychotherapy, and that cures about 22% of people. And then with just three MDMA sessions, you get up to 72%, which is almost unheard of in medicine and, and in, in psychiatry. It's It's just pretty incredible. Um, and, and it's also kind of crazy that we've known about, there were plenty of medical studies in the 50s and 60s. And so that'd be interesting to ask Bob a little bit about, you know, some of this history of we had such promising medicine, it got shut down, we're sort of coming back. How did that happen? Well, uh, the compounds we're talking about have been known in modernity for over a century starting with mescaline, LSD was discovered, psilocybin, the mushrooms were first found, and then the chemical found in it. And in the 1950s and 1960s, this information was slowly waking its, uh, making its way through the field of psychiatry. Uh, many of the psychiatrists did not have the knowledge or the wherewithal to go back to indigenous cultures that know how to use the materials, so we kind of learned from scratch, often with self-experimentation. There was a time when a psychiatrist would say, here's a novel drug, let me find out what it does. Um, and some you know, mistakes were made. Some of the early treatment paradigms were probably not at all what we would do today. 
Um, today, we try to offer a nice living room-like setting, comfortable sofa. In the early days, somebody would be in a hospital room with bright lights and you know, with temperature probes and catheters, and let's give them LSD and see what happens. <laughs> and it wasn't usually very fun for the volunteers. <laughs> Anyhow, psychiatry was learning. Uh, the profession first called these drugs psychotomimetic, meaning mimicking psychosis. <laughs> and then people started to figure out, well, wait a minute, some people are having these really large, profound peak experiences that a day later or a week later or a year later, they're describing as having shifted their lives in ways that are beneficial. Between, uh, I have read, uh, 1950 and 1965, there were over 1,000 scholarly and scientific articles written about the hallucinogens. <laughs> Open the bracket a little bit. Between 1940 and 2000, the number of articles is over 2,000. These were not unexplored compounds. What happened? In 1954, Aldous Huxley, Los Angeles guy, <laughs> uh, published The Doors of Perception, which is a wonderful, slim little volume read mostly by the intelligentsia. But it got people thinking. And slowly, the drugs worked their way out of the medical establishment, and usually into responsible hands, responsible explorers. They weren't illegal. You could call it a chemical, uh, chemical company or a professor at a university that had some. No law was broken if it was distributed and used. Uh, let's see, a young Timothy Leary, who, who remembers that name? Um, very charismatic, Irish, drunk, brilliant psychologist. <laughs> uh, happened to have eaten some mushrooms was given a wonderful appointment, three years at Harvard to do whatever he wanted, didn't have to teach, went to Harvard, filled with fire, we're gonna study psilocybin, this is the most remarkable transformation possible in human consciousness, the tool of introspection. And in a series of moves that are well chronicled, um, it wasn't just Timothy Leary, it's too easy to scapegoat one person. But let's say the drugs left first of all psychiatry, then they left kind of the upper crusty intelligentsia and they broke out into a much larger population, tied with a political message. The political message delivered by Leary and others was, the society that you live in is really pretty messed up. The school that your parents save so much money to send you to is simply a tool of indoctrination and mind control, and you're <laughs> being made into a robot to do exactly what your parents did. You should drop out of school. You should go live in the countryside discover free love, discover communes. Now, if I'm a parent who's worked really hard, saved every penny, made sacrifices to send my kid to Harvard, and my kid is telling me this is what I'm getting from a Harvard professor, or soon an ex-Harvard professor, <laughs> I and anyone similarly situated is gonna be pretty upset about that. So the drugs, LSD particularly, became deeply intertwined with political change, Vietnam War protest, free love, liberation of all kinds, and guess what? The dominant culture in this country and elsewhere abreacted. Timothy Leary was famously called by President Richard Nixon the most dangerous man in America. And first various states, finally the federal government clamped down and set up a comprehensive system for categorizing and making various drugs illegal, including prominently the psychedelics. So that's how it got shut down. But when the Controlled Substances Act was passed, it did not prohibit research. Many people think research was actually stopped by law. It wasn't. There are provisions in the law where if you fill out the right paperwork and have the you know, da, 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 big safe, you can do the research. But something even more powerful than the law got enacted, which is the drugs became not respectable. So to be 
in a university on a career track towards tenure and to announce to your department chair that you'd like to do research with LSD like, like, became, like Charlie Grove. <laughs> became a career limiting move until a couple decades went by and people like Charlie, Charlie, can I tell a bit of your sure. story like your dad? Uh, sure. you know, uh, so Charlie became interested and convinced that these materials had promise, that we made a big mistake by putting them on ice. And as I recall it, you actually asked your dad, you know, gee, I think I want to go work in this area. And you know, what should I do, be a social worker or this? And the advice was, you know, son, if you want to make a dent in this, you need to become a doctor. And he did. So there are a number of people who present the way Charlie does, clear thinking, filled with integrity top to bottom, <laughs> um, who did the really hard work to go to their institutions and get the institutions to allow this thing which they deemed countercultural, and to go to the department chair and say, I think we can do this safely. I don't think the major donors to the university will stampede away en masse. I think we can make this work. We can do the work safely. We can get the permissions. And you know, here we are some decades later, and there's, we've kind of recreated the research of the 50s and the 60s, but this time with better methods, better statistics, better controls, and we've learned how to use them better. Probably better results also. So now that we've sort of gone through this arc, where, what, what does it take to get from here to these actually being legally available medicine? So what has been completed so far for MDMA, for PTSD, and psilocybin for depression, anxiety around end-of-life distress, what's been achieved is enough phase one research to convince everyone, including the government, that these materials are reasonably safe when used in a controlled clinical setting. Phase two research has been done. These are controlled pilots, not a large number of volunteers, showing efficacy for a number of indications. There are now two organizations that are prepared to carry this across the finish line through the Food and Drug Administration. MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, is doing the work for MDMA and PTSD. And USONA Institute, a nonprofit in Madison, Wisconsin, is doing the same thing for psilocybin and depression. Phase three is just like phase two, except that it's bigger, the controls at the level of data auditing and safety monitoring are ever more stringent, like whole new layers of administrative oversight. So when the data are collected and analyzed, you can be very sure with a high level of auditing that the results are true and accurate. This is mostly time consuming and expensive. It's an amazing thing to me that all the work that Charlie and Roland and Steve and others have done for so many years has been supported entirely by nonprofit contributions. And we're very close to having enough money, um, amounting to a total of 45 million, 48 million, uh, all through nonprofit donations to be able to, as two different nonprofit drug development companies, to make MDMA and psilocybin available as prescription medicines in association with the therapy that we know allows them to be effective. So uh, the FDA, by the way, has responded to all of this. I mean, if you had a dream drug regulatory apparatus that was willing to look just at the science, set the ancient politics aside, have a sober look at the safety and efficacy, and just say, we're going to treat this as though it were any other new molecule. That's how the FDA has been. They are curious, thoroughly professional. There is no sense of political pushback. And our belief is that if we just do the methodical work for the next, call it four or five years, these two drugs will be made legal medications. It's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, this August, um, MDMA got designated what's called a breakthrough therapy status. So the FDA every year, literally a handful, 5, 10, 20 drugs get given breakthrough therapy status, which means that they are saying this is a very promising treatment for large untreated populations. There's about 25 million Americans who at some point will have PTSD. You know, probably most people think of that as veterans, which is a big chunk of it, but actually the most common cause is sexual assault. Um, and so it was very public when the FDA gave breakthrough therapy status, which is both an indication of we're going to speed this along and it makes it faster and cheaper, but also very publicly saying we want this to happen, which is a huge turnaround for something that is currently a Schedule One illegal narcotic. Um, so in our few minutes left, I'd love to hear, let's you know, presume for a moment that the FDA does approve these for, uh, for medical use. What are some of the implications? Like how 5, 10, 20 years from now, how are things going to be different? Well, you know, again, keep in mind that when these compounds first emerged in the 50s and 60s, they, they were considered the cutting edge of psychiatry. And then, as Bob described, the culture went off the rails. There was a lot of political turmoil, and this got put in the deep freeze. Now it's out again. We've established feasibility, and very importantly, we have established very effective safety parameters. So over time, as more studies develop uh, demonstrate efficacy and safety, th there will be a process of, in we'll get to the point where this will be an available treatment uh, to the public at large. Again, it will have to be in a facilitated context with facilitators who've been trained and who are um, you know, ethically grounded and, have, um, and are working with optimal safety standards. But I think the implications are extraordinary, simply examining the, uh, the general mental health of the population. There will be uh, large numbers of individuals for whom conventional treatments, for whatever the reason, do, do not work. And here we have a very viable alternative. So um, again, I think it went from cutting edge to being virtually forgot so now it's coming out again, and I anticipate it is going to become the cutting edge. And we're really, we've worked our way, you know, very assiduously from the early 90s now to get to the point where we really are on the threshold of establishing an entire new, you know, branch of mental health treatments that uh, I, I just think hold uh, great promise and potential for, to really help individuals and, uh, and, and, and facilitate even societal health. Well, and one thing also worth noting, which is very different, you know, if you get a Prozac prescription, you're on that pill for the rest of your life. No, here, here you're talking about perhaps one, one treatment session within the context of an ongoing psychotherapy, perhaps uh, a couple of others spaced some time apart. You don't, you're, you're, you're not relegated to taking a, a drug daily for weeks, months, years, which is our conventional treatments at this point. So it's almost more like getting surgery than it is like getting a prescription. <laughs> Bob, anything to add? Hmm. Well, uh, I agree with Charlie. This may be a new cutting edge, actually an old cutting edge being revisited <laughs> for medicine. Um, I'm particularly fascinated by this following fact. The drugs can be taken in tiny, tiny doses. You probably read about microdosing. That's a thing now, although not validated yet with double-blind controlled studies. There's medium doses and there's big doses. It turns out that if you look at the ability of a guided psilocybin session to actually lift depression or to alleviate anxiety uh, or to help end an addiction, alcohol, uh, cigarette smoking, cocaine, 
it turns out that the biggest predictor of whether or not that psilocybin session will have the desired effect is whether or not the person had what you might call a peak experience, what is called in the scientific literature a mystical type experience, what in various religions might be called satori, cosmic consciousness, Christ consciousness, Buddha consciousness. It's really interesting that these experiences that have mostly been categorized by psychologists and scholars of religion appear to have medical efficacy. Mm. We're gonna have a really interesting phenomenon for multiple disciplines to unpack and learn mm. from. Yeah, I mean, you read it when they, the psilocybin sessions, they're giving people a very large dose. And they're lying on a couch with the eye mask and headphones and enough where there's sort of no longer a you there. And one of the things you've told me, which I always find fascinating is, of the people who have the psilocybin treatment, a third of them say it was the single most important, most meaningful experience of their life. Like there's almost nothing else in medicine where someone's gonna say that. An additional one third will put it in the top five most personally meaningful or spiritually significant experiences of their lives. Uh, akin to like the birth of their first child. Yeah. And we are right on time to be done. Thank you. These guys will be sticking around for a bit if anyone has questions outside. Thank you.